Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message through Ecclesiastes will focus on the subject of justice. We will see that God has offered us joy throughout all our days on the earth when we live under his rulership and authority, trusting that there will come a day when he will judge the living and the dead. Thanks for joining us as we examine the difference between what justice looks like under the sun only and what it means to live under God's authoritative rule. When I was in um, middle school, about 13 years old, uh, there, w- there was one particular day where I was apparently too wound up in the classroom. When, when we got to a gym class, uh, we had a substitute uh, teacher, and you know that's never good for class clowns like me. Uh, it was golfing day. And instead of, and I've, I rem, you know, my sister and I would hit golf balls out of the yard all the time. So we knew proper form, at least as well as middle schoolers could. Um, and instead of doing what the teacher wanted, I decided I was going to take the five iron and ride it around like a pony. <laughs> and, you know, some of the other kids that were goofing off, they were, you know, I, I was not helping uh, the teacher. I was not helping do uh, you know, what the class was supposed to accomplish. I was drawing a lot of attention to myself. And uh, as the class drew on, I, I essentially forgot about that and we moved on. And then as the bell rang and we all made our way back inside, I remember the gym teacher uh, asking me to see him. Oh, ooh. And I remembered, oh yeah, I was goofing around uh, through most of class. And he pulled me aside and he said, Ryan, I'm just very disappointed. That hurt. Uh, He said, I'm not going to give you detention. I'm not going to punish you. I'm disappointed because you need to grow up. And I know your father. I remember him saying that. (laughs) And I remember he said it in such a way that made it look like my behavior that was going unaccounted for by me was actually bringing a kind of bad reputation to my family's name as well. But that the character of my dad was really that to which he knew I could just do better. And so he was disappointed. I remember that was it. He kind of he said, his, and he must have said it maybe twice, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. In our world today, you and I live with an abundance of ability to blame others for whatever it is that we do that's wrong. Taking personal responsibility in our world today is very rare to find. From the lowest person in our country to the very highest office in the land, when individuals want to blame others for their missteps, how could we ever expect that those who live in this world would come to the place of realizing that, no, there is judgment, there are consequences for our actions, and that as much as we try to deny them or push them off or find excuses for them, there is nobody else to blame except for ourselves. And so in our world today, if somebody struggles with anger, if, they're, if, they're, um, if they fly off the handle... I mean, I've heard this. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but well, that's because that's what my parents used to do, right? So, so my failures are actually whose fault? Somebody else. Or for the cacophony of confusion, 
in regards to sexuality in our world today, the most common phrase that I hear or read is, oh, I was born that way. I was made that way. So it's, it's really not my fault. I, I should be legitimized in following after my desires because that's, that's who I am. And you would be coming in false judgment over me. Or for those who want to embrace selfishness, with, if, if we're honest in America, is pretty rampant. Well, that's the breaking of the 10th commandment. Do you guys know what it is? Thou shalt not covet, right? Well, but everybody's doing it. Everybody's got one. And so it's really not my fault that I spend my resources on myself. Do you, do you see this? I could give you 10 more examples, but everybody get the point? We live in a world where it's so easy and we're so used to placing blame somewhere else. But judgment day is going to come. I'm reminded of the garden. Doesn't it sound like what happened in the garden? Do you remember Adam and Eve? And the Lord comes to Adam said, what happened here? And what's he do? <laughs> Not my fault. In fact, th- this, gets, this gets pretty arrogant. He actually says, not just that it's the woman, it's the woman you gave me was, was the blame. So it's no wonder, as the offspring of Adam and Eve, that we continue in the same line of seeking to place blame somewhere else rather than take personal responsibility. And the reason why we think we get away with it, and the reason why the world can justify it, is because, for the most part, the world has said there is no judgment. There is no justice. And so morality, right and wrong, have become for us and our generation a question of your own personal taste. It's only wrong if you think it's wrong. It's only right if you think it's right. And there is no objectivity. There is no standard that our world today lives by. Everything is up to you. You can have it your way. As we've been in the series called Chasing After the Wind in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are looking at the writer's attempt to answer the question, how shall man live? What is the purpose of your life if there is no God? If God does not exist, how do we make sense of this world? And then as we work towards finding conclusions and applications in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we hope to do is to say as true as it is to find uh, observations of life without God, we have the privilege of living with God in our lives. And today we're going to come to the subject of justice. As I mentioned earlier today in the service, this is a difficult, difficult subject Um, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. We're going to do like we've done every Sunday and look as to see how the writer in this poetic book returns to themes in a few different places. So we're going to work and make a couple of observations. You have some sermon notes that have seven of them listed up for you this morning. But I do want to give you a warning that when we examine the world concerning the subject of justice without God... It's very depressing. It's very depressing. And and my hope for us this morning is is that as we give an honest look at it, observing what the writer has given us in God's word, that you and I take a really healthy dose of fear for what it would mean if we lived without God. If there really truly is no God, I want you to see and to own like in your gut how meaningless everything is. That's the bad news. 
And if we today, this morning, in studying it, can really get our feet grounded on the bad news, you know what's going to be awesome? The good news. The, the good news only really matters when you fully understand the bad. And so that's what we're going to work towards this morning. We're, we're going to work towards uh, a healthy understanding of what the Bible offers us in the bad news so that we can have a better understanding of the good. All right, we're going to start in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. Um, uh, three, again, is probably one that you're familiar with. At funerals, it starts off in the beginning. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. And then that song from the birds, turn, 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 right? We've all heard it before. The purpose of this, I feel like I've mentioned this in the past, but the purpose of this is not to show you that there is a season for everything, but to show you that God is the one who has set a season for everything. So we, uh, attach it once more to the object of these seasons, which is the Lord. He is the one who has purposed the time for all these things. And with that in mind, we're going to start in verse 15, 16, and 17. Ecclesiastes 3.15. Whatever is, has already been. And whatever will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment wickedness was there in the place of justice wickedness was there i thought in my heart god will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked for there will be a time for every activity a time for every deed um, I wanted to begin in the beginning of chapter 3 because that was the theme as he gives these polar opposites, right? A time to be born and a time to die. Uh, he wraps up that theme. There's a reason why he was going through all that, and the reason shows up in verse 17. It's for judgment. It's for judgment. And what that means is that at least in our lives, no matter what has happened to you, whatever injustice has happened to you, it is not incumbent on you to get Retribution. You actually don't have to worry about it. Uh, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Revenge is not anything that you and I have to worry about. God has said there is a time for everything and he will bring it all under judgment. But the very first observation I want us to see comes right in the middle. It comes in verse 16. As he looks under the sun, um, what we see is that without God, there is no objective morality. Without God, if there is no God, there is no such thing as objective morality. Let, I, I don't want to lose you on the word objective there. It means it focuses on something external to define what morality is. The opposite of objectivity would be subjectivity. So it's up to the subject to decide whatever is right or wrong rather than something external. If there is no God, all we have is subjective morality or as it's called today, uh, relative morality. It's up to you. You decide the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Uh, this is not new. In fact, we saw that already in verse 15. Whatever has been, uh, what, whatever has already been, whatever, I'm sorry, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. This is true for us in our discussion this morning in the book of Judges uh, in a time that's going to be right before the Israelites have cast off God as the one they look to and they say, we want a king. 
We want a king, just like all the other nations. We find this verse in chapter 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then one more time at the very end of the book. In fact, this is the last verse in the entire book of Judges. As you look to the evils that are happening within Israel, the author here recognizes, you know, I can sum it up. You want to know how everything got so bad? You want to know how everything got so evil? Boom. In those days, there's no king. Now, who should have been the king? God should have been the king. But there was no even earthly ruler king as a representative of God. And since there was no object to determine right and wrong, how did they determine what was right and wrong? Everybody just do whatever they want. They all did it in their own eyes. If there is no God, if there is no God, there is no such thing as objective morality. An example of this that I'll give you is uh, I, was, I was up here a few, few years back with the quilting ladies who felt a little like a fish out of water there. Uh, <laughs> quilting is not something I have ever done. Uh, but I needed their help for a project, and uh, I was having to cut the fabric. Now, if you've ever taken a pair of scissors and cut fabric, if you're anything like me, you're really bad at cutting a straight line. Um, if you've never done it with fabric, how about wrapping paper? Come on, guys, be honest. Wrapping paper, Christmas time, when it comes time to, if you could take a scissors and you get it just right. I watched my mom do this as a kid all the time. She would go, zip, just like that. And it was like this perfectly straight line. Now, when I try to do it, it looks like an alligator took a bite out of the side of it. It's all, all crooked. It, I thought it was straight. right? As I'm attempting to do it, I, I think I'm trying to get a straight line. Invariably, whenever I reach far out, it goes on this weird curve on the end. And if I look, it's all curved. You know what I need? I need something external to myself. I, I need a yardstick or I need a straight edge that I can hold along the side, that I can draw the line... So that I know where to cut. Because if I don't have that, do you know what it's going to be? It's not going to be straight. I'll think it's straight. It might be straight for me, but in reality, it is not. This is the same for us. Without God setting the standard, if there is no God, there is no straight line for us. And we are left then with the loudest voice. In, in our world today, for those who deny the existence of God, the Bible will call them acting as fools. But for atheists today, the question of morality is a difficult one because they really only have two options. Either morality comes from our, from our genetics, so fatalism, which we looked at a few weeks ago, right? It's, it's, you're, you're fated according to your DNA to determine right from wrong, which comes through evolution. Or it's society. So whatever society you belong to, for them, it's right. And so if you belong to a cannibalistic tribe that lives uh, in the Caribbean, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, what's for dinner is not beef. And that's fine. And that's fine because society has determined right from wrong. I want to give us some examples that we will understand the consequences of living without God and attempting to define morality according to genetics and society. The first example I want to give to you is the modern version of slavery. The concept that you can own a human as property. 
Do you know how you do that? Do, do you know how you get to a point in your heart that you can purchase a human? You do so by dehumanizing them. You make them not human. You, you see them the same as livestock, as cattle, as a possession. And if you can do that, if you can dehumanize them, then you'll have no problem owning slaves. Whether it was beatings, forced labor, whether it was rape, or selling them off as property, the American slave trade was propelled by the widespread understanding that these people were not people, but merely creatures such as other animals to be tamed and to be used. In my research on this, uh, I had encountered far more than I am willing to share with you today of the evils that happened within the American slave trade. But just a couple. This is from Wikipedia. Uh, 1834. These are some incidents. A slave was shot by his master. A slave was forced to eat out of a hog trough. A slave was whipped to death for killing a sheep. A slave was slowly dissected and then burnt. And an infant from a slave was whipped to death by a cowskin. I don't know how many examples that just was, but uh, there is... You, you, you can go read it on your own, pages upon pages of things far more evil and worse than the ones I've shared. In 1835, this in the publication of the Washington Telegraph for the southern states, this declaration, we deny that slavery is sinful or inexpedient. We deny that it is wrong in the abstract. We assert that it is the natural condition of man that there ever has been and that there ever will be slavery. You see, if morality comes from our genetics, if, that, if that's where it comes from, then we should be able to justify our evil actions by making them scientifically sound. Now, can anyone think with me as to what scientific theory is happening also in the middle of the 19th century? That's right. Chuck Darwin leaning on the books and research that's been happening around him, comes up with the theory of evolution and states this, that man is not created by God, but just another animal, an ape, a hairless ape that has descended from the branches of the trees and now through natural selection has grown to the place of civilized obedience. By a survival of the fittest. And so morality, if it's not objective, if it's genetic, well, we, we can see that there are those who are lesser than us. Let me fast forward 100 years, 20th century, around the time of 1938, 39, and 40. There's another group of people who has been dehumanized. The Nazi propaganda machine taught a lie long enough and loud enough that the people began to believe that there was a superior race. There's such a thing as a superior race of people. And it was the society, it was the society around them that determined what was right and wrong in regards to human flourishing. So that those inferior races must be exterminated for the betterment of mankind. Again, Darwin's theory led the way for the practice of eugenics, for forced sterilization, 
and for the extermination of more than six million image bearers of God. This from Christian Gerlach, the professor of modern history at the University of Bern. He writes that over three million Jews were murdered in 1942, the year that marked the peak of mass murder. At least 1.4 million of these were in the general government area of Poland. Victims usually arrived at the extermination camps by freight train. Almost all of them were sent directly to the gas chambers, with individuals occasionally being selected to replace the dead workers. At Auschwitz, about 20% of the Jews were selected to work. Those selected for death at the camps were told to undress, to hand their valuables to the camp workers, and then they were herded naked into the gas chambers. To prevent panic, they were told that the gas chambers were showers or delousing chambers. Mass genocide and extermination that has been propagated by a morality determined by society. But the scariest thing is this. Ready? The, the scariest thing is that the people who were doing this, the soldiers of the SS and the, the internment and concentration camp workers, were not monsters. They had homes and hobbies and families and children. They cooked and ate dinner together. And yet they were able to commit the most heinous atrocities ever recorded in the modern era simply by dehumanizing others. Now you might be here today thinking, thank goodness that we have evolved beyond this. Thank goodness that that we have made it such that we no longer dehumanize those who are the weakest, most needy, most vulnerable. Unfortunately, there is another dehumanizing that's happening today. You may think this is old news. It is not. I really struggled in my research on this to find accurate numbers. They don't even give, I could not find numbers that come up to the present day, but in 2018, 619,591 legal induced abortions were reported. There's a website called Worldometer, and it has a running tally for not just America for legal abortions, but worldwide, they, they presume the number's up to 28 million. In this year, I feel like those numbers for me are beyond comprehension. I I can't even wrap my mind around this extermination of those who are allowed by society and by evolution determined as being not human. They have statistics that you can look down and thankfully there's plenty of websites that say the numbers are going down. The numbers are going down. But if you look back only 20 years ago, they were in the millions in America Year after year after year after year. I also had to be selective this morning. I would encourage any of you to educate yourselves as to the manner of DNA extraction within an abortion or any of the procedures, but just to share a little bit with you this morning, this again from Wikipedia. The cervix may be further dilated with rigid dilator instruments. Sufficient cervical dilation decreases risk of morbidity including cervical injury and uterine perforation. Uterine contents are removed using a canella and applied aspiration followed by forceps. Tissue inspection ensures removal of the fetus in its entirety. 
The procedure may be performed under ultrasound guidance to aid in visualizing uterine anatomy and to assess if all tissue has been removed at the completion of the procedure. The procedure usually takes less than half an hour. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you caught the dehumanization. I'll just read one line for you again. Uterine contents are removed. That's an image bearer of God. You know, it wouldn't be fair if right after conception, God said to this new life, good luck, you've got to fend for yourself. That wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be fair. In fact, it would be evil of God to expect a human fetus to survive like a reptile egg or a mayfly larva. But instead, watch this. God gave a gracious judgment in his design so that the weakest, most vulnerable, most fragile of all humans would be fed and kept warm and safe and nourished and protected by his or her mother. God designed the female body to grow with a set of hormones so that it would become an incubator, a safe haven for this new human life to develop. This was God's judgment. Look with me again in your Bibles. Chapter 3, verse 16. Because without God, under the sun, in the place of judgment... Wickedness is there. In the place of justice, wickedness is there. I hope, I hope you're catching this. And, and for anybody who's been affected by any of these personally, I want you to know the blood of Jesus covers every sin. Praise God. Praise God. He can restore unto us new life and complete forgiveness. But for a world who wants nothing to do with God, I am making a big point this morning. To press upon this single observation, because if you look with me in the text, notice this. It doesn't simply say, verse 16, in the place of judgment, there was no judgment. Does it say that? Does it say in the place of justice, there was no justice? Is that what it says? It actually says in the place of judgment, there was wickedness. So understand this. We should have had judgment. We're not simply going neutral and the judge forgot to get out of bed that morning. What we actually find is that when we're left without God, the human heart will do what? Move towards wickedness. That comes, again, either from your genetics or from society where we're left without morality. Okay, I told you this was depressing, right? Everybody still with me? I'm going to move a little quick through these next ones um, because I need us to get, uh, get to where we're going here. Number two is this. Without God, there is no defense of the innocent. For this, we need to look over in chapter 4. So in your Bibles, just turn with me to this next section, chapter 4. The writer says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Without God, there is no defense for the most innocent among us. They are simply left with tears. 
comes straight out of verse 1 here. Thirdly is this. Without God, those in power will tend to take it to extremes. If, if there is no God and you have power, what's going to stop you from imposing your will over those weaker than you? If there's no God. If there's no God. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I see from time to time, we have an older dog in our home and a, and a younger dog. And the other day, Emily and I were in the kitchen and um, uh, the younger dog was trying to get some food out of the dish. Because we only have one food dish. So there you go. That's recipe for disaster already. And the older one started to do this. Now, if we had not been there, <laughs> you, get, you get this right? If, if, there, if there's no higher authority, the one with the power wins. Always. If there is no God... Those in power will take it to extremes. Look with me again here in the text in verse 1. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. I don't want to jump ahead all the way to the message of good news, but understand this. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the message of Jesus to his people is that we would love those who are the weakest, that we would serve those who are hurting. That you take the, the mercy and the privileged position of being in God and you seek to lift up. Those who are weak. It's a complete reversal. It's a complete reversal of life without God. Number four, without God, death is the only escape from injustice. Now, this is, this is where we maybe reach the bottom of depression. Don't worry, I got three more to go, so we'll get even further. But look with me again in the text in verse two and three. He says, I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil under the sun. This is a sad reality. We're going to move to uh, one other passage. Uh, if you turn with me to chapter 8. This is the longest section in the book of Ecclesiastes dealing on the subject of justice. If you look with me starting in verse 11 of chapter 8. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. All right, just think about that, all right? If someone does wrong and they don't get punished for it, do they do right? They just keep doing wrong. Same amount of wrong or more wrong? What do you think? Yeah, well, you, you must know yourselves pretty well, eh? <laughs> Number five is this. Without God, wickedness is progressive. If there is no God and you get away with it, there's no judge. You're, you're going to stop here? No one you're accountable to is just going to continue to grow and get worse and worse. Again, in the text, verse 12, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better for God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Verse 14, there's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. So verse uh, uh, sixth observation here that without God, the scales of justice will never balance. Did you see that in verse 14? Righteous men get what the wicked deserve. Just for sake of time, I'm not going to go further on this other than to say, I hope you're able to see this in our world. Tipsy, turvy, topsy world we live in. What used to be right is now wrong. What used to be an encouraging challenge to live holy is now hate speech. Our whole world has been flipped upside so the righteous now get what the wicked deserve and the wicked are getting what the righteous 
deserve. But there's a problem with this. This is the first point in the text where I actually think the writer took a misstep. Now, I've got to be careful with that because I'm not saying the Bible's wrong, except insofar as the Bible itself shows this to be a problem. So let me point this out to you. Look with me carefully here now. Remember, it says righteous men get what the wicked deserve. Let me ask you a question, church. Is anyone righteous? Look with me back in chapter 7. Just turn across to your Bible, page of chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. Could someone just read that good and loud? I don't care who first, whoever got it, read it. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Oh, thank you. So is anyone righteous? All right. There's a, there's a problem here. New, New Testament helps us see this as well. Romans 3, picking from a few, per, few verses in the Old Testament. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. So here's the problem with the scales of justice. As long as you and I, and even the writer right here, I think this is why he has a problem with it. I think that the problem is we think we're righteous. I was having a breakfast with some friends of mine, my little accountability group that I meet with from time to time, and we were talking about the affairs in Afghanistan. And one of the comments was made, um, boy, there's a lot of evil over there. Now, here I am in the middle of studying Ecclesiastes. And I think, Jesus, it's real easy for me. It's real easy for me to point the evil the finger at evil over there without looking at the evil where it's right here. There is no one righteous except for Jesus Christ. And so as long as you think you're better than someone else, Paul says in second Corinthians, those who judge each other by each other are, he doesn't say idiots. That would be my own. That'd be my own paraphrase. He said, you're fools. You're fools to do that. If you compare yourself with one another, you're going to think you're what? Ooh, better than that. Lunatic, right? I'm, I'm, I'm with. Here's the problem. That's a lie that we have deceived ourselves into thinking. And so as long as we think that way, the justice scales will never balance. We'll always think that there are those who are righteous that get what the wicked deserve until you understand that, guess what? You're of the wicked. You deserve that punishment. For there is none who are righteous. And if that is the truth, then this seventh observation is the conclusion of where we are in justice. That without God, if it's true that I have wickedness residing in my heart, then without God, I have no hope. I have no hope at all. Ready for some good news? Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead. In your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's not working, those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, deserving wrath. But. Because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead 
in, in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Here's what I want us to do in the few moments that we have remaining. I want, I want us to see how in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we're given the solution. Again, this is also present in your sermon notes. There's two realities, two realities that we have to hang upon. The first is this. Since God will bring everything into judgment. We read it already. There was a bunch of places it showed up, right? Let me just remind you, Ecclesiastes 3.15, whatever has been and what, uh, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past into account. Verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked for there will be time for every activity, uh, time for every, uh, a time to judge every deed. The end of the book, chapter 12, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. You know, I found dozens of passages. I'm just give you two more, right, that you can see that this is a message strewn throughout the Bible. Second Corinthians five. We heard it already this morning. Charlene read it for us. Right. So we make it our goal to please him, whether in the in the body or away from it. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Again, Romans 14, 10 through 12. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat as it's written. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. We don't live just under the sun. There is a judge. So number one, since God will bring everything into judgment. And here's the best one, second one. And since God has already passed judgment for sin in Jesus... Since those two things are true, and I want to give you verses for this one as well. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since we have now been justified by whose blood? What's his name? Jesus's blood. We've been, we've been justified. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. One last one, 1 John 2 at the very beginning. He is the atoning sacrifice for what? For our sins. It's been paid, church. Amen? It's been paid. These two things are true. God will call everything to judgment. Secondly, he has already judged sin in Jesus because that is true. Here's the answer. And we get this from Ecclesiastes. You need to enjoy life in Jesus. Now, you don't just enjoy life. It's not just eat, drink, and be merry. This is a kind of enjoyment that's known only to those who believe these two preconditions. We enjoy life because we enjoy it in Jesus. Look with me back in the text. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him In all his work, all the days of the life, God has given him under the sun. I want you to see how this is true for the New Testament writers as well. Enjoying life in Jesus for Paul means this in in Galatians 2. He says, I, that's me with all my old loves, me with my flesh, I have been what? I have been crucified with Christ. 
And therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul now lives in who? In Christ. In this passage in Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I'm going to repeat what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes. Here's the answer. Enjoy life, but enjoy life as one who lives it in Jesus. There's a, there's a few more observations. I want you to see how it's also from the text. If you look up with me again in verse 12, <clears throat> go with me one more time. Verse 12, he says, although a wicked man commits a hundred times and lives a long time, I know it will go better with who? God-fearing men who are reverent before God. So before he's going to say, I commend enjoyment of life, he's going to say, if you have God consciousness. Thankfully, we know this in Jesus. And so three conditions here. First of all, you enjoy life in Jesus as one who reveres God. This word for revere is the Hebrew word for fear. When I think of this, reverence that's connected to fear, I think of the story of Jesus' crucifixion with the Roman centurion. This, this from Matthew's gospel. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this is the Son of God. That's to stand in awe. That's to stand in reverence of who Jesus is. But there's a little more to this as well, because again in verse 12 it says, uh, it'll go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. In Hebrew, it doesn't actually say the word reverent. It actually repeats the same word of fear twice. So, men who fear God, who are fearful of God. That's literally what the Hebrew says. And so, I I need to just impress upon you that part of enjoying life in Jesus also means you live as one who's under his authority. That's what it means to really fear God. There's there's a phrase that the Jews had picked up on this. They, they would combine uh, these two words for a single thought to reference living under someone's authority. It's the phrase fear and trembling. Have you heard that before? Fear and trembling? It actually shows up in the New Testament. Philippians, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That fear and trembling doesn't mean like, ooh, ooh, I'm so afraid. Fear and trembling is the figure of speech that means live as though there's somebody watching over you live under accountability and so to enjoy life in jesus means number one to revere god number two it means to live under his authority and number three it means to give thanks to god and i just want to finally draw your attention back to verse 15 then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life god has given him what what, what do you say to somebody who gives you something Unless it was a knuckle sandwich, that's right. You say, thank you. You say, thank you. And so this is what what it means to enjoy life in God. As I wrap this up, I, I felt like I would not be doing my role as your pastor justice if I didn't also share with you how to do that. Right? If I just said, hey, enjoy life. Have a good day. Have a good one. But I never really shared how to do that. So the second half of this is critical. How do you do that? You do that by bringing every action and every deed under Christ's rule. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. I want to leave you just with a couple of questions. 
I, I hope that as you seek to come here to be challenged by God's word, that you go home and as you ride home in your car, the Lord allows you to dwell upon these questions. Um, number one, do my actions honor the judge of all creation? I failed at that with my gym teacher. Right? My actions did not bring honor to my family. I was not living as though there was anyone who I had authority over me. I was acting like a fool. What about you? What about this life that you lead? Do your actions reveal that you want to honor the judge? Because there is a judge. Secondly, are my intentions governed by God's authority or mine? There's a great passage in the book of Hebrews says that the word of God will, will uh, sharper, than, sharper than any double-edged sword, uh, dividing soul from marrow, uh, it would judge the heart and intentions of your work. A passage in the book of Proverbs says something very similar. A man thinks what's right in his heart, but God judges his intentions. What about you? Because sometimes it's not just what you do, it's why you do it. Are you guys with me still, right? This is important. It's not just what you do, it's why you do it. So are your intentions governed by you? Or by God's authority. And then one last one here. Do you enjoy life because you're about to eat lunch? <laughs> do, do you enjoy life because you just got your Amazon package in the mail? Like, what? Think with me just real briefly. What, what is it that actually gives you joy in life? Is it the circumstances around you? Because that's not joy. That's just whether you're happy or sad. I hope that as we all seek to release ourselves, uncouple ourselves from the standard of the way the world thinks, that we would think like Christians. I hope that all of us begin to realize that my life has joy because I live with Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's pretty good.